You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. Good morning. How are you? What is new? I am hanging out today and talking about horror movies. Of course, I'm talking about horror movies because if you guys follow me on Instagram, if you've been following my career, you know that I am a horror movie fanatic. Uh, I love uh, some of the classic horror movies and I always fall back on inspiration from those movies that set a great sense of dread, a good sense of tone, and are a bit of an adventure horror movie too. Have you been examining recent horror movies lately? What was your latest favorite, right? What did I just see recently that it blew me away? Ah, yes, Possessor. Do yourself a favor. Uh, I think it's on on demand right now on a bunch of different outlets. You could probably order it on Amazon. I ended up ordering mine on Vudu. I'm not advertising Voodoo. I just have had that account for a while. And it's fucking am it's fucking Walmart. Jesus Christ, what's wrong with me? But anyway, uh, go grab, go download, pay the money for it, and watch Possessor. Directed by Cronenberg's son. I think it's Brandon Cronenberg. I think that's right. Um, it's fucking awesome. It has been so long since I have been creeped out by a horror movie. Since I have been uh, totally lost in a vibe from a horror movie. And whatever it is that the Cronenbergs, whatever the water source that the Cronenbergs are drinking from, it's it works. <laughs> Let's just say that. Whatever Canadian water source that these guys have pumping into their house, the, it just creates really great filmmakers. Uh, and uh, Possessor is right up at the top. Um, and uh, I got to get him. I got to try to get him on the show. We'll see if we can do that. But anyway. Today is about horror movies, and where should we go? Who should we talk to when it comes to horror movies? Well, I guess you could talk to a bunch of different horror movie directors. Yep, that's very true. But I could also go to a strange source for this. How about we go talk to a film critic? Not just a film critic. How about we go talk to somebody who works in horror comics? Somebody who's published over 50 titles in horror comics. So today we're talking to M.L. Miller. Now, you may know the name. He has been writing reviews for Ain't It Cool News. He wrote reviews for them for years. Uh, He has his own website now where he's doing all his reviews. He does a YouTube channel. Um, And when he was working for Ain't It Cool News, he had to convince them to do a comic book review section. So he basically headed that up. Uh, As he says on the show, he filled a void that was needed and he did a ton of reviews on comic book stuff he has made some insane connections in the comic book industry in the movie industry uh, and that led to him uh, being able to do his own creative work and like I said he's published over 50 comics uh, and they're in the horror genre he's got some really great books out there that we're going to talk about on the show I got to read one of his recent ones Grave Trancers uh, you guys are probably going to love this book, especially if you like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? If you're a Texas Chainsaw fan and uh, if you are into uh, the morbid reality 
behind grave robbing and and all the the horrible shit that goes on in cemeteries. (laughs) Did you know, here's a fun fact, did you know that Keith Richard actually snorted his father's remains? Hmm. Very strange. Maybe that's why that guy doesn't die. You know what I mean? So today's going to be fun. I can't wait to talk to Mark. And um, I am really excited about just doing a full on out opinionated horror movie podcast. So strap yourselves in. If you're a fan of horror, if you're a fan of comic books, if you want to know what it takes to write comic books, if you want to know what it takes to be an independent writer for comics, we get into all that sort of stuff. If you really just want to get into the nitty gritty details of what it's like to dig up a body, we get into some of that shit too on the show. And uh, Mark and I go over his favorite horror movies of 2019, 2020. um, And then I start to rant and rave about what I think is wrong with a lot of the newer horror movies today. So strap yourselves in. There are two different ranters on this show. One is a professional, the other is a moron, myself. <laughs> uh, so I cannot wait. And thank you for bearing with me this morning. I'll tell you what's going on in personal life right now. <sighs> I We have been sleeping on this mattress that we haven't changed in years, and it's finally given out. So I'm now at the point when I can only get about five hours of sleep on this thing before my legs and my hip wake me up. I feel like such an old fucking man. Get ready, guys. <laughs> so I'm at this point now. Gina and I are finally going to make uh, an investment in a good mattress. And so hopefully we get to do this once I finish recording this intro. And, and I cannot wait. It's been so long since I've had a solid night of sleep. And it just, it's so important. You know, you don't really think about it. Someone said to me that you spend half your life on a mattress. And you're like, fuck, how much do I spend on that thing? as far as money's concerned, and you're like, ah, I'm going to be on this thing for half my life. And good sleep and lack of sleep really changes everything. Like, usually when I'm doing an intro, I know what I'm going to say four or five lines ahead, but I'm barely keeping track right now. <laughs> I'm barely ahead of it. Uh, so for those of you who uh, follow me on Instagram, at Mike Petchy, thank you, as always. Uh, uh, you have seen the post from the folks that have bought the t-shirts that support the show. Thank you to all you fans out there that have been buying t-shirts, that have been buying materials that help support this podcast. Um, we would be nothing without you. We really appreciate that. And big shout out to those of you who have been going over to our YouTube channel and subscribing. Our numbers are going up. We're trying to get over a thousand subscribers on a YouTube channel. And there's more than a thousand people. Let's just say this. There are thousands and thousands of you that listen to this on Apple Podcasts, and there are thousands and thousands of you that are listening to this on Spotify. And I'm going to say this to all of you. I've asked on multiple episodes for you to go over and follow us on, it, on, on YouTube, and you haven't yet. So you're a lazy motherfucker. <laughs> go now. Right now, while you're on the phone, while you're sitting there, do yourself a favor. Do me a favor. Open up the YouTube channel and just click subscribe. And while you're there hey, guess what? We've been remastering old episodes and putting them up. I just put up the Ash Thorpe episode, right? It's there. It's really cool. So a lot of the older episodes are up on YouTube. There's some visualizers that go with them. It's a great place. And do yourself a favor, like I said, and and subscribe there because the hope is that the show is going to evolve and end up being filmed and end up on the YouTube channel. So what we're doing right now is we're doing our homework. We're just setting up the channel, 
getting you guys ready to rock. So once we get out of COVID, once we find out whether or not one of these vaccines is gonna be a hit, we will get to work and hopefully start filming the show. So thank you everybody that follows me on Instagram. I'm Mike Petschy. Thank you everybody that follows the podcast in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process. Say it with me, P-O-D on Instagram. You guys are the best. Um, I'm going to be running contests. I don't know when this show comes out, but check in there because I'll be running contests periodically because I still have a stack of t-shirts that I'll be giving away for free based upon whether or not you guys follow the rules for the contest. So it's a great place to do that. And if you guys are newcomers to the show, that is the place to go and try to see one of my short films that I've been talking about on all these episodes. Just write to me there. Send me your three favorite horror movies and uh, we'll see what we can do. Okay, I'll see if I can send you a link. I might have a set of rules for you before you can watch the movie. That being said, let's not drag this out any further. Let's jump right into it. So strap yourselves in, find a cozy spot to throw on those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for some strong opinions about horror on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Hey, Mark, thanks for being on the show, dude. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here, Mike. Um, so you reached out to us, which I think is perfect because <laughs> our show is essentially a show uh, listened to by a lot of young filmmakers, a lot of people getting in and out of the business, uh, and a lot of horror fans. Like, There's a bunch of horror fans, uh, fans of my movies and that sort of thing. And Awesome. Uh, your history being a movie review, horror movie review guy is, I think, really important for the show because you'd be the first on the show. Cool. Um, but then, you know, I think we're both super comic book nerds and the fact <laughs> that you've published a bunch of books. So I'm excited, dude. It's going to be great. Great, great. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Um, it's really fun to just be able to talk with you about stuff. I love I love just gabbing about horror and comics and and all kinds of nerd stuff. And um, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and they're really cool. They're really fun to to. I like the way you uh, really go into the the detail of of the creative process, which is really hard to kind of put words to. I think. <laughs> Believe me, I know. That's why most of the time I'm like fucking this fucking fuck fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. So let's uh, let's start at the beginning here. I like to do this at, a, at the beginning of every show because there's a lot of people being introduced to you for the first time this morning. Sure. Um, so tell us a little bit about you. Like, how did you start in the business? Like, did you start writing review first? Or were you writing books first? Well, where did you start? Uh, I've I've always been basically, I guess you would call creative. I guess um, from I I have a background in in painting, um, and, and I also. Um, I in school I went to the Ohio State University and we um, and I studied film studies there and film criticism mm -hmm. and that's and then I moved to Chicago to um, study art therapy and that's where I, I that's basically what I do outside of my creative aspect even though I, that still has a, a large creative aspect to it um, but during that time I moved to Chicago I didn't really know anybody and I got involved with uh, Ain't It Cool News 
just by being a part of the talkbacks down there, like a lot of people were back in the day. Um, this was around uh, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they didn't have a, a comic book review section. And we, I had kind of met a couple of people through that forum, and we just decided to start up a weekly comic book thing. And little did I know that 15, <laughs> late, 15 years later, I would, have still, I would still be doing that. Um, it, it was just a, a weird process of taking the reins of something because it wasn't there or find, seeing a hole in an organization that wasn't there before, approaching that organization and them kind of giving us free reign to do whatever we wanted to do, which was a lot of fun. Uh, we, we, uh, I got to meet a lot of people. Um, I made some really good friends, um, a few enemies, I guess, along the way as well. But <laughs> that happens in, through the years. Uh, but for the most part, it's been uh, a fun ride at Ain't It Cool. Um, I left the site a couple of years ago. Uh, and I just felt it was time for me to, to move on and, and kind of do something on my own. So yeah. what I did there, I started as a, I started focusing on the comic books because that was sort of my expertise. But I've always been a, a horror guy. I watched horror from when I was just such a small kid that I, <laughs> uh, I just didn't know. I didn't really know anything else. And my parents really allowed me to, to watch whatever I really wanted to watch as long as, as it was feasible. And back then... This was like the the eighties and nineties stuff. There, there was just stuff more available for kids. Uh, the video stores were less less strict about uh, re- like picking up. I don't know things like I spit on your grave and blood sucking freaks <laughs> and Dawn of the Dead and all of that stuff. It, it was just a, a really it was a great time to be a kid and and someone who and and I was just so interested in the genre that. I just watched everything I possibly could watch. So when I saw that there really wasn't a person covering horror at Ain't It Cool News, I ended up just saying, I mean, at least they would cover the big budget horror that was released, but no one was covering the independent stuff, the stuff that was DIY or shot on video or whatever. And and so I just said, well, that sounds like a niche I can fill. I I love that kind of stuff. I appreciate that uh, kind of, um, just kind of like go get ness that people have mm-hmm. uh, uh, in horror. They It seems like more than any other genre, horror fans really want to kind of pick up the camera and make it themselves a yeah. little bit more than fans of rom-coms and, and whatever. <laughs> and, and I think horror is really easy. All you need to do is mix some ketchup and corn syrup and, and uh, you know, and, and water it down and you got some blood and, <laughs> and you go to your grandma's like farmhouse or whatever and just you start filming and that's that's how a lot of these things started i mean even with the biggest names like sam raimi yeah. evil dead if evil dead was reviewed was released now i think a lot of people would kind of turn their noses up to it but um it, it's it's like it's regarded as a classic now but uh i think a lot of um and that sort of attention wasn't really given to the site at that at that time other than the classic stuff so i just figured screw it i'll do that i'll take on another responsibility and i will uh i'll do a weekly horror column and so that i i did that for at least oh gosh i i did that for about 15 or 16 years and then i kind of just moved on and, and started my own site doing the same thing that i used to do but uh, just under my own banner of M.L. Miller Writes. Uh, mm-hmm. And during that time, I met 
I've, I was meeting people in the industry and when I was giving interviews and doing interviews with people, I would, I'm always kind of taking notes at, at whoever it is I'm talking to. And I, I'm thinking about how can I use that in my own, in my right. own creative kind of process. And so I just really paid close attention to that to the, and I ended up interviewing a lot of the greats, uh, I've, as far as current greats that are, are like Jeff Johns, Scott Snyder, uh, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, Joe Casada, all of these guys that everyone uh, everyone looks at uh, in really high regard these days, and mm-hmm. um, they and it was really kind of nice to be able to talk with them, but also see meet people like Charles Sewell and um, and uh, uh, Robert Venditti, and there are so many other uh, writers who are up and coming or they're established now, but they've only been established within the last couple of years. Uh, James Tiny and the fourth, uh, those, all of those guys are really interesting guys and seeing that kind of process of them starting out on an indie book and then getting into the big leagues. And then like James Tiny and is writing Batman now. And it's really mm-hmm. interesting to see his earlier stuff compared to the stuff he's writing now. And, and that development, um, uh, one of the one of the people that I really like talking with is uh, Peter Tomasi, who went from doing indie stuff to uh, writing Batman and Robin, and mm-hmm. really really developing the new Robin and uh, and making making comic books that resonate and they really kind of um, they they tell big stories, but they also pay attention to character. And those are those are the ones that I'm really kind of uh, interested in. Um, Again, I totally, sort of, yeah. Sort of babbling about it all, but um. no, 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 no. I completely agree with you, brother. And you know, like I've said it on the show multiple times, but I started wanting to be a comic book artist, and that's that's kind of where my inspiration came from. And ultimately, 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 I started reading comic books because I was grounded all the time as a kid, and <laughs> my grades were so shitty that I wasn't allowed to watch television. So I think uh, okay. for about eight years, I didn't see any pop culture television because I was between middle school and high school. <laughs> I didn't see anything. And so I picked up comic books and I got lost in comics. And you know that was back in the 90s. So this was back when Jim Lee was doing the X-Men. This was back when you know, before the guys made the big jump to image. And so I grew up on all those old books, Spider-Man and all that stuff. And then it wasn't until years later that uh, I started to get dig into the indie world and started to dig into the independent stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully I did, you know, um, because there are so many fantastic, um, like up and coming talent that comes out of that indie world. And like you said, they, they get plucked in that industry to suddenly be writing for the big boys. You know, next thing you know, you're writing, you're doing a whole new Batman run. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know where my career will go. Um, right now I'm, I'm trying to do at least a series or two a year. And I've, I've kept up with that for the last couple of, I don't know, the last seven or eight years. And and that's been, that's been good for me. It's matched uh, what I could kind of create creatively put out there, but at mm-hmm. the same time, um, and, and at the same time have a, a job that actually, uh, you know, pays the rent, things like that. <laughs> so, uh, so it, it was, I've been lucky enough to, to be able to have that opportunity. And a lot of that came from just meeting people at these conventions and just talking with them, uh, like not as, as fans, but either as a student in the craft or as, um, somebody who just, 
wants to um, relate to somebody on an, a normal level. And uh, right. people always people always say, "How do you break into comics?" And there's there's no one way because as soon as someone breaks into comics, um, as as soon as someone uh, breaks into comics, that hole is sealed up basically. <laughs> so you've got to you've got to kind of break a new have a new uh, a new way to, to get in there. And once you get in there, you hit another wall and you got to find a way to break into that one too. So um, yeah. it's yeah. it's a many layered process and I'm sure it's the same thing with with filmmaking as well. Totally, dude. Totally. Like the, everybody wants to have a system. They they're always asking, I mean, that's kind of what the show ended up being, but they, they are always asking like, what is the steps I have to do? Do I go to film school? Do I go on set? Like, yeah. how does that happen? And then how, <laughs> like, how long does it take? You know, and you <laughs> talk to a lot of younger filmmakers and they're just like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. I'm like, well, how long have you been at it? Oh, about a year. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. if you're, like, if you've got fatigue by that time, then yeah, it's, it's time to yeah. move on to something else. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's. I mean, it's a hobby at the, for the most part. It, it's great to be. If if you look at it as just that and accept that, that's fantastic. But um, if you're looking for a career, it's a long ride. And um, it is. Some people are built for it. Other people aren't. Um, it's nothing against people that aren't. It's just that it's really hard to. Uh, it it takes a lot out of you. Uh, just rejection letter after rejection letter, <laughs> or you see people that you were peers with and now all of a sudden they're writing in the big times and you're not and it's uh, there there's I, I wouldn't say jealousy but it's more like you know we came from this place we, you know we should all be rising together but it doesn't right. happen that way all the time and it's just it's frustrating but um for me it drives me to kind of continue to to write continue to create and and just keep on pushing <laughs> so is your is your day job you were mentioning earlier art therapy right is that what you were saying is that what you yeah. do for your day job yeah i um i went to the the school of the art institute here in chicago and uh, got my degree in art therapy and expressive therapies so basically um i work i i used to work in and out of um i've worked in hospitals i've worked at um adoption agencies, uh, group homes, things mm -hmm. like that. And you would be the staff therapist as well as group therapist where you would just kind of lead the group, talk them through a process of what the project is that they're doing it that day, and then try to process whatever it is that happened in the group, be it um, just interactions that they had in the group or what they created in the group. And, and that's basically what those like kind of group sessions were like. Um, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. Um, again, little pay. <laughs> it's just, you know, I guess I'm just attracted to those types of, uh, professions, but, um, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can make, I mean, you can make a career out of it and I, I do, but it, it just, uh, it's something that I stepped away from a little bit just to kind of focus on writing when I could. And now that this, this, uh, kind of the COVID thing happened, it kind of, um, it kind of cut the legs out of the therapy and the serve yeah. that kind of service industry. Um, yep. So it's been it's been good because I have a lot of time just to kind of write and do things like that. Um, I do get that urge every now and then to kind of get back into that field, and I probably eventually will again. But um, right now, it's just such a weird weird time that <laughs> you don't want to take these new chances and just uh, you know if you don't have to work in a hospital. You don't want to. Uh, exactly. You, you don't want to put yourself and all your loved ones at risk uh, just because of that right now. At least I don't. So, um, so I've kind of uh, taken this time to kind of regroup and 
refocus on my creativity, I guess, in my, in my writing. So that's, I guess that's been good. I've been trying to make lemonade out of lemons, uh, but <laughs> no, dude, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like it, it, I mean, everybody I think was sort of facing that thing, especially when the lockdown started. And that's why you had like, that's why you had, you know, thousands and thousands of people posting about the breads that they're making. Which I got, mm-hmm. I'm a bread professional now. Yeah. Um, but it's been good. I mean, the same thing for me, although I've always, uh, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I've been struggling as a director and working in the industry for about 20 years now. And I haven't had a, I haven't had a real job, quote unquote. <laughs> I haven't had a real job in 20 years. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, it was kind of old hat for me, but everybody else was sort of playing in that, what do I do with myself? Like, I can't go to work. So what's this new thing? And so I think the arts have really expanded over the past six months. Um, and uh, I think people are finding a lot of happiness and a lot of comfort in that. Um, and uh, I, I totally agree. I, I think that, uh, I mean, at the start of this pandemic, I kind of just said, well, what am I going to do with my time? And I started a new YouTube channel where mm-hmm. I can just, it basically expands on what I was writing about when I was doing movie reviews. And this was just talking about horror books and horror movies and horror comic books just kind of to give myself something to do so I wouldn't go crazy during this whole time. Um, and again, that that horror channel, I, I was planning on doing it like once or twice a week. And now I try to post like once a day or, or, or wow. you know, at least at least at least four to five times a week rather than once a week. So it's it, I've gotten it down to kind of like an art form. But um, as soon as you build something like that, you're approached by so many people to take a look at this movie or take a look at this book or, or let's do this interview. So it's, it, 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 um, it really does kind of have a life of its own after a little while. So it, I'm not complaining about it because it's keeping me busy, but it's, again, I kind of step into these things that, um, there was a hole and I, you know, <laughs> I fell right into it. <laughs> I do I completely agree. Cause it's the same thing with the podcast for me. I sort of weighed heavily into the show because why not? And everybody yeah. is available and everybody's home. So everybody wants to talk and do stuff. But then next thing you know, it's a beast on its own where you're like, holy shit, I'm recording like five episodes this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what the fuck's going on? Um, <clears throat> but let's continue because there's a bunch of stuff that I want to get into. But let's talk a little bit about uh, what you've been writing. And you sent me over some of your comics, which I thought were fantastic. Oh, you sent you. me over the Grave Tranches stuff. And I thought... Yeah. Really cool shit. And for those of you listening, you definitely have to check it out. Um, I love your kind of obsession with... And the thing that I found the most fascinating was like creating creating an addictive drug from corpses. I thought that was pretty rad, man. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Yeah, uh, Grave Transfers came along a couple of years ago. I, I was uh, talking with a, with a buddy of mine named uh, Matt Pizzolo, and I had heard about this story about a graveyard south of Chicago that... Basically, they would resell the plots, and in the back <laughs> of the graveyard, they would have a giant pit of just bodies, and they would just throw it back there. They said the smell was awful. Everybody almost, it was like people in the neighborhood knew about that something was horrible going on there, but they really didn't know what. And they really didn't uncover it until somebody showed up trying to find the graves of their loved ones, and uh, they couldn't find it because they had been selling and reselling the plots. And just dumping the bodies back there. And so I kept up, I was thinking about that. And then um, I, I don't know if I saw an episode of, of something on Vice or 
or whatever, but it was, uh, they were talking about smoking ashes or, um, and different things people did to, to get high. A buddy of mine had just gone through rehab and he was telling me some stories about things that were going on there. And so the two stories kind of just clicked together. And I said that, okay, in, so that they were able to dispose of these bodies by making a drug out of, out of that. And I didn't know the scientific process of what would happen there. I mean, my, <laughs> my basis of knowledge that comes from basically Breaking Bad and, and Scarface, I guess. I don't know anything else. <laughs> PhD about. at that point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. They do basically give you a how-to course there. But, uh, but basically, I just kind of used, it's, it's kind of like Breaking Bad set in a cemetery with, um, with these kids who are basically looking for the grave of their estranged father um, and trying to come to some type of resolution to a lot of the problems that they had in their youth. And he had a kind of like a pauper's grave at this, and they tracked it down to there. Um, when they, and when they get there, they uncover this kind of whole organization. And I was always a fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not only, not only just the obvious like bone chilling stuff that went on there and the, just the grungy um, cinematography of it all and just the performances and everything was just so iconic there with that. But I also saw the family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre almost serving as a machine where someone lures you into the processing plant and then someone is there to exit. It's, it's like they're leading the cows to the slaughter in mm -hmm. that movie. And I kind of wanted to kind of set, set the uh, grave transfers up with that sort of same type of machine. So it's a family that basically brings, uh, brings in the bodies. There's somebody who, everyone has a specific job. There's an owner of the, the place. There's someone who uh, takes care of funerals and all of that sort of thing. And there's a mortician on, on grounds and there's a grave digger on grounds. And then there's a weird guy in the back that makes the uh, drugs from, from the corpses and they're all related. They're all, and, and it's, it's a kind of foggy relationship of the, of how they're all related, but uh, <laughs> it might be like semi incestual. It might be, it's one of those weird branching family trees that, that you see in mm -hmm. a lot of places, <laughs> or at least, <laughs> at least in horror, you see that in horror a lot more. Right. The exaggerated South basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I just, I wanted to set something. I always loved that type of thing. Any type of Texas Chainsaw Massacre riff I always liked. And so this is my version of that, which um, I had a lot of fun with. And um, I tried to put a lot of heart and soul in the story of one of the, uh, one of, well, all the characters, but the one character specifically focusing on her addiction. She's a recovering um, addict uh, going through the uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous kind of program. Uh, mm -hmm. And she's been sober for a certain amount of days, and she repeats those amount of days as a mantra to her to kind of give her strength to remind her that she's survived this long without the drugs. And it just so happens that now she's thrown into this situation where these drugs are sort of forced upon her, and it's a it's definitely a a crisis of of soul, of conscience, and, and things like that, uh, where she's built her strength from this uh, this beating this addiction and now she's faced with this horrific horrific kind of representation of this addiction so 
Um, that to me was the heart and soul of the story mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. everything else around it was just the dressing basically. Dude, it's great. I think it, like all those elements are really fun. And, uh, you know, I as well am a Texas Chainsaw fan, fanatic. I think that <laughs> the, the original is almost like a documentary to me. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, I think it's still, it's one of those movies that was made when horror was allowed to be scary. When yeah. horror was allowed to be intense. All right, you know the deal. It is time to take a break. It is time to take a break from our strong opinions and give you some strong opinions on, <laughs> on equipment and gear. And I know that there are a lot of you gear nerds that listen to the show and you're just like, Mike, how come you don't do more gear-centric shows? Why are you not doing more unboxing shows? Can, can't you just buy expensive equipment and open it up and we can live vicariously through you and please, please tell us how to spend all of our unemployment money. <laughs> I don't know how I survive. I don't know how Gina stays with me with all this cynicism. Uh, no, today, right now, what we're doing is we're going to give thanks to the sponsors of the show. Now, so you guys know before you start to skip, the people that I pick for sponsorships, it's a pretty rigorous process. I just don't go to anybody. I always approach companies that I respect. I approach companies with equipment that I use. And I approach companies that have morals. <laughs> right i don't i'm not i'm not supporting these companies where the owners are buying their their third ferrari okay these are people that actually give a shit about artists these are people that have given a shit about my work and so i have no problem in the world supporting them and i have no problem in the world telling you guys about them because i consistently daily get emails from you guys saying uh what kind of gear do you use what kind of lighting do you use what are you editing all your stuff on? Well, fancy you ask, because our first sponsor of the day are my good buddies over at Puget Systems. I just did, recently did their podcast. We talked a lot about this podcast on that podcast. It's very incestual. Um, but Puget Systems is the place to go. I'm just going to say it. No bullshit. Puget Systems is the place to go when you're ready to buy your new brand new edit system. Okay? Your brand new, 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 buy new edit system. Jesus Christ, get some sleep. Uh, go to PugetSystems.com. There you can purchase an edit system. Uh, you can actually find one based upon the software that you use or that you're going to use. And here's the thing. Hold on to your seats, everybody. It's a PC. Oh, fuck. It's a PC. Yeah, it's a PC. I have been editing on PCs all my stuff, all my movies for the past seven years or six years on PCs. There was a while ago that I gave the big old strong middle finger to fucking Apple. And I was like, I'm tired of your shit. I'm tired of spending so much money. I'm tired of going into debt with you guys. Oh, you guys offer up a credit card and I could stay in debt on that credit card with you guys? Fantastic, thank you so much. And then every time they roll out a software upgrade, somehow, for some reason, the hardware doesn't work anymore. And then there's always some, you guys ever look at the details? You guys read the industry mags about the backdoor politics that goes on between Apple and the hardware manufacturers and the constant bickering and fighting that happens in the background? Ultimately, it's because Apple is a control house. That's what they do. 
They basically build systems that you can't get into because if you put your sticky little fingers inside the system, in their theory, you're going to break it, right? So you're not allowed access to specific folders. You're not allowed access to parts of the hardware. The cases are really complicated. The gear is really complicated. And then they're like, look, here's a handful of pieces of hardware that you're allowed to buy because those are the ones that we've made these machines work for. It's weird, right? Why would you buy something like that? A computer is a tool. It's a toolbox to help you make your shit, right? And how often do you, how often are you running your machine and you're in Premiere and you're running way too many times, you're running way too many video tracks, you're running way too many audio tracks and the playback starts to stutter and you're just like, what the fuck do I do with this? And then you go on to Apple's website and they're like, load it up with more RAM or load it up with this and you still do it. And you're like, what the fuck? Or there's some software upgrade and then suddenly that codec that you were using doesn't really load. It's obnoxious and it's a big part of the everyday life for a video editor. It really is. Every time I see that update thing roll, I'm like, God damn it, is my project gonna happen? Kill automatic updates, please kill automatic updates for me. Because every time that happens, I have to troubleshoot before I can get back into my edit. This stuff has been driving me crazy for a while. And a big byproduct of this was that I am done buying Apple products as far as edit machines are concerned. I'm only going to find a PC, but I don't want to build the PC on my own. That's a big part of it. Because if I build the PC, especially when I was running a post-production studio, if I build the PC, then I become tech support for all the PCs in there. I need to find a company that's going to build me a PC, but I need a company that's got tech support. And I don't mean Apple Care. I don't mean the thing where it's like, hey, hold on, we'll text you in like three days and we'll let you know when you can get on the queue to fucking get support from us. I mean calling someone for real. It's someone that knows my computer, knows what they built for me. That's huge. Can you imagine like the ease with that? Where like you call them and they're like, what's your computer? Oh, hi, Mike. Yes, that's me. Oh, this is the machine we built for you. We have all the specs here. Got it. We could troubleshoot whatever bullshit problem just happened to your machine. Fantastic. Oh, by the way, you can upgrade all the hardware in it. So you probably have this machine for years. I've had... One of these machines that we're working on right now, I've had this thing for almost seven years. Can you believe it? Seven years. I just cut on that machine and the new one that I just bought from them, I just cut uh, all of the B. Miller campaign on all these. Multiple music videos, over seven music videos, all sorts of different online content, different mixed formats. We would, Gina was shooting fucking 4K Pro, uh, GoPro footage. She was shooting Hi8 footage. She was shooting... Uh, mini DV footage, um, DSLR footage, all that stuff running in the same timelines, real time. Okay. So I know a lot of you guys out there are video editors. I know a lot of you guys out there are filmmakers and directors. If you're a director, you should have an edit system because then you can play around and learn about cutting on your edit system. Even though you hire editors, you should still have your own edit system. I'm telling you. Go to PugetSystems.com. You're going to find that they're affordable. You're going to find that they're upgradable. Uh, they have options for you to choose from. They have baseline packages, but these guys want to build custom machines for you. And the thing that's great about Puget Systems is that they're not a manufacturer. So they're not going to be hustling their shit on you. They are just a building, a computer PC building company. So they're constantly scouring the internet for great deals. They're making relationships with the manufacturers. They're making relationships with the software engineers. They're trying to 
be that therapist between the both of them to make your machine run stronger. I'm telling you, it's a magical thing. Go to PugetSystems.com, check them out, and tell them that I sent you. Click the link below this episode that lets them know that I sent you over there, um, and they'll be like, yo, you listen to Mike's show too? Yeah, yeah. All right. Also sponsoring the show, as always, our good friends over at Quasar Science. One of the coolest advancements in the film industry has been LED lighting technology, and that's been around for a little while now. And you've, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but LED lights have got to the point where they're actually making true colored daylight and tungsten sources, which is a big deal. Remember when it first started and like the tungsten sources were almost pinky and the daylight sources were really green? That was because the LED lights sucked then. And if you go find really cheap manufacturers, that's what you're dealing with. That's why a lot of folks are like, well, what's the difference if I go on to fucking eBay and I buy uh, an LED light from China, it's so much cheaper than if I go to someone like Quasar. And it's like, yeah, but Quasar builds LEDs with tested high quality LED light units in them. Stuff that will maintain color. And that's important for you on set. That's important for you over the lifespan of the light, first off, but that's also important for you on set because you don't wanna have variations in color between shots because then you're going to be in that painstaking process and i've done this in the color grade session where you're like is there more fucking green in the skin tones of this shot and then you start you're trying to pull that stuff out and that doesn't really match and the next thing you know you're having to color grade everything to make it match and it's like why do that why make more work for yourself why buy a cheaper low grade led unit when all it's going to do is give you about 25 more hours in the post-production on that process and knowing you the young filmmaker that you are you're probably not charging them enough for the color grade as it is so save yourself some time save yourself some money and get yourself a high quality led lighting unit like i said quasar science has amazing bicolor units they have really amazing uh, rainbow led units and if you want to know more about quasar go back through our catalog go to inlovewiththeprocess.com and click on i think it's on the film crew section and you'll be able to see multiple episodes from the dudes from quasar where they actually talk about the technology and they talk about their company really great space these guys have supported us for a while now so go to quasarscience.com and check them out and like i had mentioned in that read go to inlovewiththeprocess.com as you listen to this episode we make references to a bunch of different movies. We make references to comic books. And you're like, ah, trying to write it down quick and search for it on the internet. Just do yourself a favor. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. Every episode that we put out, we put out a web page that has the supplemental material that we talk about underneath it. And if you're a newcomer to the show, it's a great way to get into the show because it's kind of daunting. No big deal. We've got over 100 episodes. No biggie. And I know when you first show up, you're like, man, where do I start? Do I go to episode one? But I really want to catch up. But I, I, there's a bunch of shit for here. Like, okay, so then there's episodes about chefs and there's episodes about musicians and there's episodes about fucking firefighters. I just want directors. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There we've curated all of our episodes. So if you just want to listen to the director's episodes, there's a whole director's section. If you want to listen to the top 25 episodes, there's a great way in. There's a top 25 episode page. Or top 20 
I think it's going to become 25 by the time I do this. So go to unlevelthaprocess.com. Um, let's see, what else do we have for reads? Those guys are cool. Uh, let's give a read for Industry Jump. Uh, it's been a while since I've done so. One of the communities that we're friends with that support us, we support them, is Industry Jump. If you go to industryjump.com, it's a great place to find a community of filmmakers. So if you're not living in one of the production hub states, if you're not living in a major city, if you guys are out in the middle of nowhere, you're out in the sticks and you're running around making movies with your iPhone, and you're like, look, I love this. I can't wait to 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 have a career at this. Well, here's 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 the big news. You're gonna eventually have to move to a production hub city. If you're in uh, the US, you're gonna either have to go to New York, or if you wanna be in movies, you're probably gonna have to come out to LA at one point in time. Don't do it right away though. Spend some time practicing your craft and making movies in your hometown. And here's why. And here's a big old tip for you guys that have stuck through the through the production read or through the, uh, Jesus Christ, Michael. For those of you who have stuck through the ad reads, because I warn you all the time that I'm going to give you some nuggets. So here's why you don't move to Los Angeles right away. Stay in your hometown. Get yourself a camera. Doesn't matter the quality of camera. It really doesn't. You can use an iPhone. You can use a fucking high 8 camera. You can find something on eBay that costs you $50 and use that as a camera to capture your stuff. Then start making your movies. Get your friends, get your relatives, get the people around you that are very excited that you have a passion for an art. And you'll be surprised at how many people will come support you when you have a passion. You will become a beacon for them. They will want to come and enjoy, be a part of the origin story of you as a filmmaker. So in your hometown, get your friends together and start making movies now. I'm talking about making shorts. I'm not talking about writing and doing features. Eventually you'll get to that point. But if you want to be a director that is pitched in Hollywood, if you want to get to the point where you're doing the new Star Wars movie, if you want to get to the point where you're directing the new Godzilla movie, fingers fucking crossed on that end, by the way. Um, what you need to do is you need to start practicing tone, right? And I know you guys are like, tone, what the fuck does that mean? How does your movie feel when they watch it? How does your movie smell? I say that on the show all the time. How does your movie smell when they watch it? What does it sound like? Spend some time and build tone and do that in very short, little short sequences. Design a scene, right? Now, what could that scene be? I don't know. Maybe uh, off the top of my head, maybe you have a character played by your sister uh, and she's asleep in the middle of the night and there's a noise in the house that wakes her up and she's gonna make her way through a dark, creepy house to find the source of that noise. That's it. In one room, out of one room, into the next, right? Simple. How would you shoot that? What would that look like? Are you gonna rip off Sam Raimi and is it gonna be a Sam Raimi piece the whole time? Are you gonna be one of the millions that rip off David Fincher and is it gonna be a David Fincher piece? Low angle floor, footsteps in the frame, really cool cutaways, everything is floating from a third person uh, perspective. Nah, do it the way that you wanna do it. Maybe you just wanna try those things out. Maybe it's a combination of those things. Maybe you stumble across something completely new. Work on your tone. Make these little pieces, do it on your iPhone for fuck's sake. Make these little pieces and post them. 
put them up. Put them on your Instagram account. Put them in a place where you start to build an audience and you're just building tone. Because if you've gone back and you've listened to the other episodes, the episode with uh, Richard, who is the producer who did Cider Heist Rules, he did Hateful Eight. Uh, he talks about it where he's like, I look for tone in directors. I don't necessarily look for short films that are supposed to be features and they're trying to do too much. It's tone-based. There's a little bit of advice. Do that. In your local little town. Make it happen. All right. I don't know. I went off a rant. I think I got all the reads. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's get back to it. Back into it with M.L. Miller. days i've been on this rant before and i won't go too deep on it but i'm sure you can join me on it but sure these days uh i feel like horror has been so there's two ways to make money in the business you're either dressing people up in superhero suits and you're trying to make the bills like the billions Mm -hmm. and then they're the people that are like let's spend no money on a horror movie and try to make millions you know yeah um and so that genre game has become it's become really a good business where there's a lot of people getting into horror that don't actually, that aren't horror fans, which is kind of funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've interviewed a lot of people like that. It's, it's funny that, that yeah, people see horror as basically a stepping stone for them Mm -hmm. to kind of direct the next star Wars or something. And it's, it's frustrating to see that because I think that it's been proven, I think lately a little bit with the way, um, "Quote unquote elevated horror has has become the new trend, um, which has been. I mean, I I appreciate those films, but um, to me, the way Hereditary, Midsummer, um, The Lodge, uh, there's a there was a movie out this year called Relic that was mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really good, uh, but it, a lot of them deal with this. It's almost like sorrow porn, where mm-hmm. in the night or in the aughts, I guess." They were calling it torture porn, where you were sitting there and you were just seeing somebody strapped to a chair and and being being tortured or being uh, or it, in some way they were you were being tortured or you were being forced to witness or experience these things that were out of your control. And I think that a lot of that comes from kind of uh, the 9/11 era, where you were basically forced to sit in your right. chair and watch watch the towers go down. And for 10 years, America's horror, at least, was responding to it by by reenacting that experience in Hostel and and all of the other kind of knockoffs of, of films like that. But um, but sorrow. But for me, it's like the sorrow porn stuff. It's almost like you're wallowing in this feeling of dread and it's almost like they're enjoying it. Uh, the filmmakers are, are really enjoying that that thing of just really putting you through this emotional ringer and at the mm-hmm. end of it you're you just feel like you just want to go home take a shower and a nap or a long sleep with <laughs> all the all the drapes pulled and everything it's it's not the kind of horror that um really sparks creativity in me or or excites me about horror it, yeah it, it, but um Lately, films like Relic, there's a new movie out called The Wicked and the Dead uh, by uh, Brian Bertino, who did The Strangers. They are, they're touching on that kind of like overwhelming feeling of dread, but they're able to 
make it still kind of make it poppy enough where there are some jump scares in there. There are some some really tense moments or there's some really well thought out scenes that have a beginning, middle, middle and end as far as how the horror happens. Yeah. And how like there's a reaction to it. There's something there's like the initial jump scare and then you see what it is that actually jumped out at you and that scares you a second time, basically. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things that a lot of things like the insidious movies and the and the uh, the uh, you know, the conjuring movies, it's all coming out at you. And there's like the Don music head bang on the piano. And sure. it's, it's just, uh, you, you know, you just, you get sick of that. I mean, we saw, we've seen that over and over and over again in this, like what comes out in Hollywood. And, and, uh, that's again, that's why I like to go to like kind of the indie low budget stuff, because that's where the real idea is the grittiness of like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre still comes through. Um, it just feels more real me totally dude and b- believe me because that's my you know we can talk offline on what i'm working on the audience is just rolling their eyes because i never tell them <laughs> but uh <laughs> we can talk offline about it but um that's kind of my bread and butter too is is the indie horror and sci-fi scene and mm-hmm. i it's a it's a constant battle as you're trying to get movies financed and you're trying to get movies made where like when I first went out to pitch one of my films, it was the week that Hereditary came out. And so Uh, every room I went into, it was like, have you seen Hereditary? Have you seen Hereditary? Have you seen Hereditary? And I'm like, I've seen Rosemary's Baby and I've seen The Fucking Exorcist. So yes, I've seen Hereditary. (laughs) You know, like, can we we talk about an original idea? And one of the things that I found incredibly shocking when I pitch movies is that if it's truly scary, they don't want to make it. No, no. They, yeah. Because they, it doesn't appeal to a broad enough audience for a lot of uh, financiers. So, like, they're in this game of, they're they're scouring. <laughs> I like to say it this way: they're scouring uh, Quick Mart parking lots, looking for that scratch ticket that someone dropped. That's a that's a winner, and that's essentially <laughs> what they're doing. And oh, so, very true. You've got these great companies like A24 does a lot of it. Uh, SpectreVision for sure does it. You've got these great indie companies that are um, allowing to have some creative, interesting, uh, dangerous uh, horror movies uh, put out. Thank God they are because, dude, I'm tired of like the the haunting of Hill House and you know what I mean. Like it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's like, can I please like everybody's like American Horror Story? I'm like the dude that did Glee did that. <laughs> Like it's yeah, not, yeah, it's not hard to me. Like, and I, honestly, I I mean, the American Horror Story stuff. I I do watch them. I haven't watched all of it, but I've watched enough of it to know that uh, the stories. It's all shock, and it's almost like everything in the kitchen sink is thrown at you. Mm. Um, but there's no real story. There's no real resolution. I I think that all, every one of those seasons kind of comes to a point where it should have ended like four or five episodes. <laughs> before those seasons actually end and everyone knows it and it just feels like everyone is just treading water to get to that 13 episode thing and and yeah they they can't make it they none of these none of those seasons really work uh, that way but uh yeah i mean it's i i it's funny like horror is such a weird thing especially when you're looking to kind of make something on any kind of budget um it's it's very tough to to sell and i think it's even tougher to sell in comics uh there's there are like maybe two or three big names in horror in comics and they don't really want they figured okay it 
those guys are like working double and triple time because and they're churning out story after story uh, like a couple of times like you, you see their name at least two or three times releasing comics in a month and <laughs> it's like I'm like man share the wealth you know you can't you can't have everything you know written by um, I mean I'm a fan of Colin Bunn but I mean he's got a new horror story out every you know every month there's a new yeah. new thing from him and I'm like come on you know there are other people out there trying to trying to write horror stuff you know let, let's give other voices a shot but uh it's it's a it's a, it's a fascinating thing right because if you look at when all of the the movies came the movies that came out that everybody is essentially ripping off right now so if mm-hmm. you if you go back and you look at the late 70s and the early 80s and you're talking about early west craven you're talking about toby hooper you're talking about you know john carpenter you're talking mm-hmm. about uh all of the greats from that time period they were coming out of a a period of time like after like post Vietnam War post mm-hmm. all that stuff. And so being broadcast on your television were bodies and and uh you know victims of the war. Mm-hmm. And then we we sort of went into this period of time in the 2000s. <laughs> well there's a lot of dog shit horror that came out in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I think The Ring was the only one that really sort of stands the test of time for me from the 2000s. Yeah, I I mean I think there are a couple and Right now, I'm trying to think of them, and they can't. They're probably more obscure <laughs> things, right. uh, like uh, I mean, things like Martyrs and, uh, right. and a lot of the French horror mm-hmm. uh, really, really messed me up. I mean, there was a there was a good three or four years there that every year there was something that was so intense and so edgy that um, that uh, it, it's like the French were able to kind of tap into that and deliver that uh, inside high tension. All of those right, movies right, were right, right, right. frontiers. Like all of those movies, kind of had an edge to it that none of the other movies out there had. And then after that happened, everybody tried to make those movies. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's just a never-ending cycle, I guess, for a while. Totally, dude. It, yeah, because we also had like the J horror for a bit, and it was mm-hmm. all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's it's fascinating, and th- and then now I think it's just because of the the industry. I think it's because uh the theaters and the um and the distributors were like look it costs too much money to make a 30 million dollar movie and then put it in the theater and Mm -hmm. so we've sort of lost the whole mid-level movie going uh thing that's happened so then you have all these filmmakers that are hungry and starving for it i forget who i was talking to one of my favorite movies recently was it follows Mm -hmm. i think i was sitting I think I can say this on the air. I was on set for a movie and I was sitting with one of the producers that had done that film. And it was weird because I was visiting a set and I never really get to. So I was at Video Village and sitting <laughs> at Video Village with like, a, like you know, 15 producers. And whenever you're a director, you're like, what are all these people doing here? <laughs> so, so I was one of those people, which was really fun. Uh, and so I'm sitting and just, you know, talking uh, shop with these folks and one of the women that i was chatting with was one of the producers on it follows and i was like man that movie's fucking great i was like that i really enjoyed that film and i loved the score for that movie and she was like yeah originally it wasn't supposed to be a horror like originally <laughs> it was going to be a drama and uh the production company talked him into making it a horror wow and yeah. i was like what and they're like yeah and if you look at his second film which was mm-hmm. the Under the Silver Lake. Yeah, yeah. 
that was more the vibe that he was trying to go for with It Follows. It wasn't really? wow. supposed to be a horror movie. And so you had this, this hole for a lot of like uh, dramatic filmmakers, for a lot of comedic filmmakers that would normally fall into like the fifteen to thirty thousand dollar or thirty million dollar range for movies mm-hmm. that just doesn't exist. And yeah. you're either then going to Netflix or one of these streaming services, and they're like, "Can you stretch this out to twelve hours?" Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. And and they'll say yes. It's like who says no to that? <laughs> you know, no one's going to say no. I don't think so. I'm going to. I'm going to. Sorry, Netflix. Take your millions of dollars, and uh, you know, right, I have too much. Right. I have too much integrity for that. <laughs> <laughs> or you get the other end of it, which is like you have all of these folks jumping into the horror bandwagon, where you suddenly have comedians doing horror, you have actors doing horror, you have all these folks sort of doing this stuff, and it's a stepping stone. So when you watch the horror stuff, a lot of it is just lacking that. I don't want to say cynic. It's like cynicism and cynic, like that sinister shit that mm-hmm. th- that I loved from when we were like tar. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I really there are some solid horror films that have been released in the last couple of years. I do every year in October. I do a countdown of the best of the horror that um, basically looks at all of the horror movies over since the last Halloween, and um, <laughs> it it basically just goes through the gamut of lo-fi stuff uh, to to um, high concept high budget stuff and it's I'm always surprised when I look at the list and say this is this is interesting this is great you know at least there were at least 30 31 decent to great movies that were released this year in the horror genre which I don't know if I could say the same for other other genres I think uh, I that's mean, true name the best name the 31 best rom-coms that that came out this year <laughs> I don't think anyone would be able to crack like the top five, you you know, it's as far as like naming movies, but there are probably movies out there that that fit the bill and, and like fit a sort of checklist that I have of what makes a good horror movie. But um, at the same time, I don't see the classics that there are a few, I think, unfortunately, as, as much as hereditary annoys me, I do recognize it as a, a really well done horror movie, and I'm glad that guy's kind of stuck to horror, even mm-hmm. though I'm not a particularly great fan of his his movies. I'm glad that someone of his caliber that can attract that kind of caliber of actor um, will want to go to that go to those films and kind of take the chances that that he does. I think that that's that's an admirable trait i think uh that that uh yeah, Ari, sure. Ari Aster has um same thing with robert eggers even though i my least favorite movie over the last year was um was the lighthouse i i just <laughs> i couldn't get into it it was just way too art house for me and um to me it's like the whole movie was just uh two guys in a lighthouse smelling each other's farts literally <laughs> and um, that's basically tells the that's all I really need to say about the movie. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's totally true. <laughs> I, I I just couldn't get into it. Uh, but I love the witch. I think that it was a it was a fantastic movie, and I do want to recognize the craft that went into the lighthouse because there was a lot of that as well. Uh, oh, for sure. I mean, he's a madman. I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine being a director at his level where he's like, I'm going to get into research, and he's researching language, and he's researching history. Yeah, and it's he's, like he's filming with the type of 
cameras that would have been oh, popular in that age, which is, I, I mean, <laughs> that's a level of dedication. At, and he can afford it now. You know, he made The Witch. He, there are people willing to take chances with that. I, I mean, The Lighthouse was not my cup of tea, but it was a media darling. So um, he's going to get a lot of money for the next one, which from what I hear is supposed to be pretty insane. Uh, it's some, I think it's a Viking movie or oh, some right, kind of horror Viking yeah. movie with, it's got a whole bunch of pretty big name. I, maybe Nicole Kidman and Anna Taylor, Anya Taylor joy is back in, in it as well. And it's supposed <laughs> to be wild. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I'll watch it, but, um, it's good that there are some people that are dedicated to horror, but, um, yeah, going back to what we were saying earlier, there are way too people way too many people that kind of use it as a stepping stone and they just don't have any respect for it and they just go by they either use things that they think are edgy and new but they don't really know the genre so <laughs> we know that they're they've made there have been like 50 movies made from that all around the world but they're like oh i'm gonna come up with this idea of a a phone that kills you or <laughs> something like that and it's like no you can't that's been done, you know. <laughs> I know, dude. It's Evil it's Twitter feed or whatever, you know. It's <laughs> just not. That's not scary. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different reasons for that too, and 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 talking to execs is is a fascinating. It's fascinating to talk to these folks that are just like, sweet. You know, what was your favorite? What's your favorite horror movie? At the, whenever I'm doing a general or if I'm meeting with people, I'm always just like, what's your favorite horror movie? That's usually where I start, yeah. and. And I've had people want to make our movies with us. I had one producer that really wanted to, to do our 12KM. And I was looking at the posters on his wall. <laughs> just sitting in the in the waiting room, just looking at the posters. I go, why the fuck are we here? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And then you go in the room. He's like, I want to make a lot of money on horror. And you go, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing, you were talking about pitches. And I think, it, and just that whole process, which is, I mean, it's an art form of its own. And going in and, and talking to people and just convincing people to give you an amount of uh, to fund your project um blindly basically mm -hmm. I mean, you give them a, a number of words that hopefully make some sort of sense um uh, either in a written pitch or like like through through publishers it's usually a written pitch um i've i i know quite a few publishers and i i talk with them frequently i ask them what they're looking for as well as um if they've read my stuff i try to give get publishers all of the material that I I publish so that um, so that they're up to date on what I'm doing just to kind of keep my name out there for them um, and I, I think just to be able to have that skill to convince them to back your product or it, which your story your movie your comic book whatever it is that's your product that's what you're putting together that's that's such a, a hard process to master <laughs> and I think it's it's one of the most important ones. I mean, you could be the best writer, but if you can't talk to, uh, if you can't sell your product, then it's it's really not gonna, you know, it's not gonna work out for you. Totally, dude, and especially especially with horror and and genre, because genre is heavily reliant upon tone and taste, mm -hmm. and uh, conveying tone and taste correctly, especially if it's just. With a movie, especially if it's just a script, if you're handing somebody a script, I always have so much trouble with it. Like I, I, I work with a really great screenplay writer, so he does a fantastic job writing amazing scripts. But then 
you're sort of at the mercy of how someone processes what they're reading and their their history, like how they grew up. You know, if you, I always say this, if you had like a redheaded uh, love interest, like maybe they got beaten up by redheads when they were kids. <laughs> yeah. And so like you, you're at the mercy of all that stuff. And uh, as a director and I, on the show, we've talked about this with a lot of the younger filmmakers. I think it's imperative that you make a, a short film or a proof of concept, or you just make a tonal piece and you make a piece that really proves or shows a like a glimpse into your voice mm-hmm. as a, as a storyteller because it's a lot easier to get people to back that you know yeah. what I mean yeah. and they can come in there and see that tone and go I've got this other movie about this and I think you'd be really cool like your voice would be really cool for that you know yeah yeah and I, I one of the things that I think comics has which might be a bit uh, kind of like a leg up over filmmaking is that it's not as intense a process as far as you have to gather up a, a crew to be mm-hmm. able to make a, con- a, a proof of concept piece. Uh, you can kind of just talk with one artist and maybe get a colorist in there and and uh, find a, a and have a good couple of friends who do lettering um, and put that together to for like a five page uh, sort of preview of what the series would look like. Um, and if you can do that and catch their eye with that, I think that it 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 really helps. Um, a lot of people, though, starting out, they don't know anybody. And uh, the, I think the, the best thing I have done is just really kept in contact with all the artists that I've worked with, told them that I wanted to work with them again, and just kept tabs with them through the years. And mm-hmm. I've, um, I worked on a book uh, called The Jungle Book for a, a company called Zenoscope out of, uh, they, they work out of Pittsburgh. And they're a, uh, smaller company um they do a lot of uh kind of cheesecakey covers of like <laughs> girls in bikinis and stuff like that and swords <laughs> and stuff like red sonia and things like that they don't do that but they um <laughs> it looks like look like red sonia basically um, right. but um but the stories inside i've found have been really chilling um they really do like horror they really do um pay attention to stories they have an inner continuity to their stories and i was able to kind of take uh they they kind of focus on fairy tales and I took mm. the story of the jungle book and I, I kind of turned it into my version of game of Thrones with animals where it's different tribes of animals fighting each other. And there are four children instead of just the one Mowgli character, there are four children um, including Mowgli uh, that are basically representatives of each of these tribes. Um, and each of them have kind of been imbued with the characteristics of the tribes that they've, they've done it's not like superpowers but there it's it's more like nature versus versus nurture um the and they deal with that in the jungle book with Mowgli and the wolves how mm-hmm. he fits in as a wolf in some aspects but then there are other aspects that he's just not as fast as a wolf he's just not able to do the things that a lot of the other wolves can do and how the struggle that someone has when they're in that place um which was really weird for me because at the time I was working for an adoption agency and hmm. I really didn't notice the similarities when I first got into it. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that I was writing about the kids that I was seeing who was who were basically mis or like displaced from their families and put into an adoptive or a foster home, and hmm. being forced to kind of come up with um, their own way to survive. And they're it's in. I mean, they're all humans, but they're all um, forced to adapt to 
a totally different environment or a totally different parenting skill than what they, they had previously known. And that was that again, it, if you kind of find that connection in your stories, it makes it so much richer and, and you can just kind of keep on pulling from that and just make it much more resonant. I think in the, in the stories that you tell, if you can find something real in there and it could be, I mean, it's just like with star Wars, uh, everyone always goes back to that moment of Luke standing on the edge of, uh, the dune in Tantooine and he's looking over at the dual sunlight and everyone kind of, that's the, that's the moment that resonates in everybody because it, everyone has felt that way that there are bigger things in life and they feel like they want to, they might want to jump out there and dive into their, their, uh, you know, X-wing fighter and, and go out there and go out into space. Some people do it. Other people just remember that feeling and remember and kind of regret not having done that. But it's always that kind of feeling that people can kind of latch onto. And if you can find that in your stories, I think it, it kind of really does uh, make them so much more relatable and interesting to write. Yeah, I know, because that's what everybody's hunting for, especially if you're mm -hmm. building like larger worlds and fantastical elements. And, you know, you need to have that, hey, I like this fucker, you know, like I believe in mm -hmm. what he's doing and I want to do the same thing. And the other thing that's fascinating about Star Wars is Star Wars has become such a, you know, it's become such a Bible, you know, for, for so many people at this point. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been lifted to this stature of like the, the perfect sci-fi movie and i had just watched i had just watched uh an early documentary on the making of it and really? uh, it was actually pretty inspiring because that movie was a nightmare like the, the original making of star wars was a fucking nightmare and he, like i think they were saying the first two weeks that he was doing in the desert was a disaster hmm. and everything they had shot was a disaster and then uh, they, when they got into the studios, it was a disaster. The original cast, and they have footage of it, they have footage of it. The original cast would make fun of Lucas the whole time because <laughs> they just didn't take any of it seriously. They, like there, there was at no point uh, a point of reference for them where they like walk down a harder and they're spitting out terms to a like a like a little person inside of a fucking trash can that's like yeah. wiggling from side to side. Uh. And uh, there's a... Uh, you know, rumors about how Lucas directed and Lucas was one of those guys who's a, he's a tech nerd. Mm -hmm. And in our business, you see that you either come up through this business from the tech side or you come up from this business from the drama side. And, uh, he didn't know how to talk to actors. And yeah. so, so the actors would be looking at him, looking for a point of reference as they stare at, you know, whatever light in the horizon that's supposed to be a planet exploding. And, and Lucas would just say to them, can you do it faster? You know, like do it faster and do it, you know, and so they started to make fun of him. And it's no the, wonder he used so much CGI in the later films. He was much more yeah. comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you look at his concept art and you look at the early concept stuff that he was putting together... He was so disappointed with everything that he was capturing. He was disappointed with the puppet work. He was working with a team of professionals who notoriously have given a lot of filmmakers shit that we love, but the people over in London. And those crews are incredibly brutal to work with and work for. And they were hassling him and giving him shit. And so he would look at his dailies and it just, he was like, this is terrible. I'm done. I'm over. My career is done and my career is finished. And um, his first cut, his first cut of the film edited, I forget who did the original edit, but his first cut was god awful. 
And and they had to bring in two other editors. They had to bring in two additional editors that had to quote unquote intensify the edit. And if any of you listening, you guys will know this. I've done this on my early films where you don't get the footage that you need because you just, you don't have the experience yet. And so you're going through your raw footage and you're like, I didn't get a good reaction to this. I didn't get a good reaction to that. And so what you end up doing is you're pulling from, you're pulling from the heads and tails of clips. So when the actor stops acting, because they keep think the camera's not rolling anymore and you're like, oh, this is a real moment. And so you're just (laughs) injecting those into your film, you know? Uh, And so the original Star Wars is that they were using all heads and tails and they were injecting moments into this movie and building this thing to be what it was. And so when you see this thing that is acclaimed to be like a revolutionary film, which it was, but it's acclaimed to be this thing, you look at that and you go, this was a huge fucking Band-Aid. Like, because yeah. everything that they were shooting was dog shit. And they had to make it in the edit room. Wow. Um, and it's inspiring to think that way. Because we put these movies on such a high pedestal. And we're like, oh, can you imagine? I wish I had the resources that Lucas had. I wish I had. Oh, yeah. You know, and and at the end of the day, to bring it back to what you were saying, at the end of the day, the stuff that keeps it classic and that keeps people coming to it is those emotional keystones. The fact that Luke looks off and goes, I've always wanted to do this. And that's where Lucas was real smart. And he was he was obsessed with the hero's journey. He was obsessed with all that shit. And that that saved Star Wars. You know, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's what was kind of lacking in the latter films that uh, it it didn't have just that one single moment to build on. And you can go back to any point in the the original kind of trilogy's story. And it I think all of it comes from that moment. Had Luke not made that decision, none of the other stuff would have happened. Yeah. And it would have. And I think that it it's definitely a. Uh, it's inspiring. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to track down. You're going to have to give me the name of that documentary because I'd love to see it. Yeah, you could find bits and pieces of it on like, I hate to promote them in any way, but you could find bits <laughs> and pieces of it on Disney+. Plus. There's okay. a doc on there. You have to read between the lines because they're sure. glazing things to make it look great. But then you're of like, course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, I, the other thing, though, is that I think a lot of people come in with ideas like Lucas in movies and comics and I think you got to you got to understand that you're not going to make your first comic and it's going to be the first of a hundred part saga of that <laughs> is going to be, you know, this expansive tale that you want to tell. And it's it's like Game of Thrones meets Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings. And it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> but you won't really understand how fantastic it is until issue 60. And there is no publisher that is going to take you seriously because of that. You've got to come out. you got to. You've got to prove yourself to be able to write a single issue or mm-hmm. or maybe even a five-page story in an anthology. And then you prove yourself by being able to write a single issue, then a, li- then a limited series, and then maybe link those limited series together and tell a bigger tale that way and have it grow in that sense. Um, I, there are so many people that I've talked to at these cons that are uh, – I would – I would call them hopefuls. I would call them, uh, they want to tell their big stories and they think that that's all they're going to do is pitch that big story to the, uh, to the, the publisher. And they don't understand why 
no one's taking them up on it and they're frustrated because they have don't have a chance to do that but they don't understand that no one is going to invest the time the energy and the money into your project unless you're George Lucas I guess at in 1970 something you know well, that's, dude dude you know, completely and if you if you do the history look if you do the research on uh, how he actually got that done, it was just one single exec at Fox that believed in him as the filmmaker. And that exec went through hell mm -hmm. uh, trying to keep that movie, <laughs> trying to keep that movie in production. Like yeah. he had an entire board of people that are like, kill this movie, kill this movie. And he was like, <laughs> and I think he actually quit because of it ultimately, but he was forcing them and he just believed in the voice of George Lucas. And of course it helped that he had made American graffiti and that was like the number one movie at the time. Yeah. But he was, he was also doing a sci-fi movie in a time period where all the sci-fi movies were either incredibly depressing and he was going to do like a Buck Rogers, like a weird fucking sci-fi thing. Um, or no flash Gordon rather. He's going to do like a flash Gordon movie. What the fuck is this? Yeah. Um, and that producer or that exec just, believed in him as a filmmaker he didn't even believe in the story <laughs> yeah and it's funny that uh that after that uh, buck rogers was made flash gordon was made all right. of the battle star galactica not, even the resurgence of star trek all of that none of that would have happened if not for george lucas and yeah. what happened with what he was able to accomplish uh, yeah I, I mean it's it gives you something to strive for and it also gives you inspiration um at the same time i'm like i don't know if i ever will or even want to make something like that you know that <laughs> that it, because you see the other end of that you see where what's happening to star wars or what what's going on with star wars mm -hmm. now where it's such a giant monster that no one person can kind of keep a hold of it and i think he was smart enough to sell it and and now he has all of these millions of dollars i think a lot of people would like to have his hand in the 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 latter uh, films uh, or mm -hmm. at least what's coming out from now on, or at least people who's, who believe in, who kind of grew up believing in the the concept and that is still in awe of that, of what was, what had come before. Um, but I do think that, that seeing what happened with it and, and how it, 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 you see all the toys and all of the spinoffs and all, all of this stuff, it just really, taints that original kind of vision and i would rather have a moderately successful comic book that um that people still believe in and i can feel like i i put out than something that really becomes a watered down version of my original concept um it's frustrating yeah. to see that happen yeah no i believe in that too i believe in that especially in the movie world i'd, I'd much rather make a really fantastic genre movie for a specific audience than mm -hmm. i don't know i shouldn't say any of that on air i would love to make a lot of money <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all want to make money yeah I mean, i'm not saying that but i yeah. i am also saying that i i, I see the craziness I, I guess more money more money more problems i guess yeah, you know for that's sure. just what it is for sure more more fingers in the more fingers in the recipe, you know, yep. like in the beginning, it's a, it's a bigger battle for that. So when you see these movies that, uh, you know, you know, I, I was a Godzilla nut. So I mm -hmm. like, you know, for me, it's like the idea of like being pulled to make a new Godzilla movie. I was like, fuck, that's so cool. And the <laughs> fact that those dudes were all horror dudes that were coming out of that stuff and getting into that. I thought that was really fucking cool. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you, you look at what they're doing and you're like, okay, so they're hired by this big studio to come in because they liked their, you know, they liked 
their original movies and they like their vibe. Fuck yeah. Okay, cool. Now what are they going to do? And then they have to go into the studio system and, and that the beat down that happens in there where it's like, okay, little horror movie maker, you now have to, you know, make back 160 million to start. So, you know, yeah. scrap those crazy ideas that you have because we have to at least make 160 back, you know? And, and, and so that is a weird thing. And you look at it and you go, hmm, I wish that had more balls, but if it has more balls, then is it going to resonate with more people? You yeah, know? it's good. It's going to make people feel uncomfortable, which is what horror should do. Yeah. Um, and, and it's almost, uh, you know, contrary to what the studios want because they want the butts in the seats. They want the, you know, they want the most people to buy that project, but, or product, but a lot of people don't, especially now they don't want to feel uncomfortable. They would rather just feel kind of numb and, I guess, satisfied at yeah. the very base level, um, which you can look at any of the the million series, like reality series on Netflix or or tel- on television, or even, not even reality series, just the regularly produced series that show up every week on Netflix that that are like, I'm like, how are, how are all these movies, or how are all these seasons getting made of these series that I have no idea? I didn't even know, like, something was on its sixth season that, that, I've never even right. heard of this project or this title before. It's just weird. Right, 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 right. And then you you have such a gluttony of of stuff because, you know, you're now a subscription service stuff. So it's just like keep the keep them subscribed. Keep them subscribed, keep putting out shit. And if there's a long-running series, even better. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because then they're going to continue to subscribe to it. And you get some outliers. You have some stuff that sort of comes through and filmmakers that make their way through and they stand out and they've made something really great that's either been produced by, you know, Amazon and produced by Netflix or mm-hmm. HBO still seems to hold that up a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a new battle. It's a different type of battle. And mm-hmm. it's great that there's such a need for content because there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, positions open. There's a new job positions open for people to be able to maintain that engine. Um, but it's also tougher to get those small indie dangerous movies made, you know, mm-hmm. like what, what were your favorite this year? What are your favorite horror movies so far this year? Um, I really liked, um, Possessor, which was, I uh, fucking Brandon. loved it, dude. Yeah. I just saw that. Yeah. That one's a great one. Um, I mentioned the dark and the wicked earlier, uh, but well, Possessor was Brandon Cronenberg, which I don't know what it is about the Cronenbergs, but they just have it in their genes, I guess, to make movies that are thought-provoking and and kind of gross and kind of just, you know, I, I just think that Possessor is probably my favorite movie this year so far. Oh, my far. God, dude. It was like, it's so, let, uh, let me interrupt you for a minute because a lot of people haven't seen it yet. It's mm-hmm. now available. You can go order it on demand in different places. I saw it last week. I haven't sat down to watch in a long time a movie that affected my imagination the way that that did and really affected uh, my body the way that that did because of how great the prosthetics are in that piece. Mm -hmm. And they do such a... The acting is fucking great in that movie. They do such a good job of convincing you that another actor is played by another actor. And it's like, fuck. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's not like face off, you know? It's not like all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, somebody's just sort of picking up on some of the the ticks like i i hate it in movies where it's like they show somebody and they have a an obvious tick like they snap their fingers three times when they (laughs) 
every time they walk in a doorway. Um, and then, you know, they switch bodies and then that person snaps their fingers three times. It's not like anything stupid like that. It's really yeah. subtle. It really feels yeah. like they're studying um, these people and making them, they made them, they made them whole. And then they, and then they, it's, it's almost like both actors converged together to make a character whole. And then um, each actor was playing that character rather than, um, someone imitating another actor or yeah. you know, someone's mannerisms, which it takes it to a whole other level, I think. Um, and it's it's a level that you wouldn't even really think of, but Brandon Cronenberg does <laughs> just Dude. because of who he is and who how, I guess how he was brought up. Um, you know, <laughs> it's it's that's I guess that's what you do in the the Cronenberg household. You you think of body horror and uh, oh new God. ways to creep people out and. That, that movie was fantastic. Um, I loved it. But then I also mentioned uh, The Dark and the Wicked, which is by Brian Bertino. Um, that one's a, a really, really good movie. Uh, it's full of dread, um, but it's got some, it's got a lot of scares. It's got it deals with again. It kind of deals with this really heavy subject matter of a parent of of a sickly parent and people coming to terms with losing that parent. But it does it in a a way that really kind of gets under your skin and, and really kind of strangles the soul. Um, mm. But then also um, The Color Out of Space by Richard Stanley, um, that the H.P. Lovecraft adaptation with Nicolas Cage. I love that movie. That was like, <laughs> because Possessor came out in October, um, it wasn't in contention in my best of list, but uh, <laughs> I love The Color Out of Space. Richard Stanley is a filmmaker that fascinates me. Um, I saw that Lost Soul um documentary with him about how he kind of lost control of the the filming of the island of dr moreau uh, mm -hmm. which i was I, i've watched that movie probably three or four times just just because it's such a harrowing story to me it's such a horror story because i i can, I can see the the hope and and uh just kind of dreams that that richard stanley had for this project <laughs> yeah. and you just see all these forces like there's nature comes in and destroys the set you know you got marlon brando coming in acting like an asshole you've got <laughs> yeah. uh, val kilmer acting like a bigger asshole and oh then you've got God. the studios pressuring them and and then to be kicked off the movie that was like basically your vision and your passion for <laughs> so long to make um i understand why he might have snapped and might have had like a nervous breakdown or or um it, it, it's, it's just, to me, that was, it was just dev, a devastating watch. Um, but, uh, I rec recommend that to anybody who hasn't seen that documentary. Um, it's lost soul, the, the tragic story of Richard Stanley's yeah. Island of Dr. Moreau. I think that it's got a very long title, but it's basically lost soul. Um, but it's such a good documentary. He's such a gentle, cause I, I was lucky enough. I got to go to the premiere out here, uh, mm. before, before the lockdown, I think they were, I forget what festival, Beyond Fest, I think it was what it was. Okay. Um, but he was there um, and he's such a, he's such a, like a quiet little soul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can understand why he would be overwhelmed by the studio system. I mean, that's yeah. the perfect example of the horror stories that you hear about um, just this, this kind of studio intervention. Um, and so that to me, um, Color Out of Space uh, just had it all. It had the prosthetic effects. It's got, mm -hmm. uh, it's got that solid story by Lovecraft. It's got uh, all kinds of of family drama that goes on. There's really horrific moments in there that that go on with uh, 
his wife and kids. And uh, <laughs> then Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage in there. And it's people were complaining yeah. about that to me. I, I've been on so many podcasts the last year defending color out of space. But um, I, the character that Nicolas Cage plays in there would have been such a boring, bland character if not for the fact that it was played by Nicolas Cage. And he added all of this kind of flair to it. I guarantee that the alpacas um, were <laughs> Nicolas Cage's idea. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that uh, no one else but Nicolas Cage could have obsessed about the alpacas like, like he does. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, there's just so many crazy elements to that that I, I really loved. Uh, so that was one that I... I always recommend to people. Um, I don't know. There were, I, I liked, uh, come to daddy, which was another spectra bit spectra vision, um, story that, uh, mm -hmm. that was the one with Elijah in it, correct? Yes. He, yeah. Yes. I saw that one and, and they, his father calls him to, it was like a beach house or something. Yeah. And his, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it, it's much more of a, it's just an unpredictable film. And I think that, um, uh, Elijah Wood does a great performance in it. You don't really know what's going to happen as it goes along. Stephen McCaddy is great in it, and I think that all of these, uh, all of these, they bring all of these weird elements together. To and at the end, you really feel bad for all the characters that are going on in there. It's a poignant <laughs> story uh, about a father and son that um, you know it, it's got this kind of darkly comic tone, but at the same time, it's it does tell a kind of a soulful story in there. So. Mm -hmm. That's another good one. Um, Why Don't You Just Die? Have you seen that? Which one was this? Uh, that's a Russian movie, um, basically about a kid whose girlfriend tells him that her father abused no. her. And no. it all takes place within one apartment. Um, and it's filmed in this kind of like Guy Ritchie style. And it's just <laughs> basically slapstick horror um, where these two guys, he... The girlfriend is lying to the um, her boyfriend basically because she just wants her dad out of her life, and, or she she wants to be able to like, kind of like leave the home and and everything. And so her way of doing that is manipulating this kind of like dumb kid into going and killing her dad. And so, <laughs> but her dad is this tough as nails cop that just is, you know, this kid is just he shows up at the door with a hammer and. Um, and just the comedy ensues from there. It's it's Russian. It's got this kind of like really boppy kind of like punk rock Russian kind of tone to it. But um, it's super violent. But it's it's almost like a Three Stooges sort of violence, but with ramifications, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's got a like an Evil Dead kind of level of of violence and gore to it. That that it's just it's such a even though it's terrible things going on, um, it's just a crowd pleasing kind of movie, but because it's Russian, because it's, um, like a foreign film, it probably uh -huh. wouldn't play a lot of like festival or it wouldn't play mainstream movie theaters. So a lot of people might stumble across it, um, on like IFC or something, but I, I don't see it being a mainstream, 
uh, a movie yeah, like mainstream no, people would like. No, but. people are allergic to. Dude, I did a whole. I did my first short, my whole first first proof of concept, uh, twelve kilometers. I did that in Russian, <laughs> so mm, I did that okay. in a language that I didn't yeah. speak. And that was one of the first questions that when when I was going around pitching around the feature, they're like, "You don't want to do the feature in Russian, do you?" <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, "No, yeah, no, man, of course not." Yeah. But yeah, no, it's you know, you're. It's, I I love the Russian language because it is. It's so, I hate to sound like a dumb American, but it's so scary. And when you yeah. listen to yeah. that inflection and you listen and that body language that comes with it and mm -hmm. sort of the whole lack of uh, satire, <laughs> the ability to understand satire from, from them, it, yes. it's, it's really great. It's a good uh, subject material for scary stuff. Yeah, and, and this isn't particularly a scary movie. It feels a lot like a Tarantino meets Guy Ritchie meets... Mm -hmm kind mm -hmm. of a, a Sam Raimi sort of uh, that kind of kind of bonkers violence. But at the same time, it does have that kind of old, old school Russian mentality where everything is serious. Everything is straightforward. You're on the level. You're on the, you know, every, everything is at, at one place. But then there's this kid who um, feels a little differently. He probably doesn't have the same kind of morals as that, as the, <laughs> the old Russian kind of, uh, I guess stereotypes you're thinking of, or we're all thinking of when we, when we picture Russian, you just, you know what you think of, you think Ivan Drago, you know, you think uh, <laughs> yeah, things course. like that. But, um, this is more of a younger kind of generation. That's probably much more liberated, much more like a lot of the younger folks here in, in America. And they've grown up on all of this kind of stuff that they've seen from America and, mm -hmm. and around the world. And so it's a much more kind of like broader worldview that has a little bit more of an open mind. And so it definitely is a conflict between those two ideals. And it, it really is a, a fantastic film. I, I recommend that to a lot of people too. I love chatting with you, man, because it, it's obvious that you love horror as much as I love horror. And, <laughs> you know, I just went through October where I was doing a bunch of research and I was, uh, I was doing it's cause we were working on two new ideas. So we were digging through like the monster in the house genre and I was watching everything from like the greats to the shitty shit that's in that genre and trying to mm -hmm. learn from it. Um, and it's such a, it's such a rewarding genre. Like horror is when you find great horror and you find something that you respond to so well, it's exhilarating. And mm -hmm there is this level of tone building and world building that happens with these directors, whether you're talking like Cronenberg, like old school Cronenberg movies, you're just like, fuck, like I know that world, I can smell what that world is like. Or if you're into the dread building of Carpenter, like I just uh, watched uh, The Fog again the other day. Oh, I did he, too, yeah, yeah, fantastic movie. Dude, movie's so fucking good. And he, uh, granted the Haunted Pirates and the Haze are a little cheesy, but... Like the whole opening with uh, that the town slowly being haunted and the mm -hmm. the cars in the parking lot coming on and like just that that tone building and yeah. I, someone sent me I think it was my writing partner and he, he was just trying to trigger a rant out of me but he sent me <laughs> a link that was uh, about a scientific experiment judging the scariest movies ever and what it was doing was I'm gonna fuck this up 
what they what they were doing was checking your heart rate yeah. based upon what you were watching. I saw that and, same article. Someone sent me that one too, and it, oh. it infuriated me too. I forget which. What was the what was the winner? It was some kind of like. Cheesy... Oh, it was like it was. It wasn't. Was it sinister? Yes. Was it, yes, it was. was. It, yes. Was it sinister? It, yeah. look, look, which is not a terrible movie at all. <sighs> but it's it, it's one of those jump scare fests that that yeah. basically do every cheat in the book to make you make you jump and if you're looking for heart rates that's of course that's what's going to happen you know you're going to get that kind of you know lowest common denominator thrill crap i think but totally uh, dude but if if that's how we're judging good quality content then that means all of michael bay movies should win an academy award <laughs> yeah you know no, what I'm you're, saying? you're right you're totally right yeah because it's like it, it, i the the problem with those films is that by the by the time you leave them you don't remember any of it because it's all right. jump scares and it's all hollow scares that um you really don't know what's going on and i i have literally come out of films talking with with the people i went to see them with and completely forgotten uh, how the whole thing ended just because <laughs> the only thing i'm thinking about is that you know i at least it's not as loud or at least it's not as uh, you know in your face uh, as as it was. You know, you're thinking about right. the scenes. That the story is so like last place in in those those films. Uh, I was thinking, I was talking with somebody about the Rob Zombie films just a little while ago. <laughs> I just watched how, all his stuff again too. <laughs> which I mean, it it has an aesthetic. He mm -hmm. has a certain thing that he does, but at the same time, it's all everything is shoved in your face it, it doesn't like if he were if he were painting a house he would just be painting the same spot over and over and over again with like 10 layers because he doesn't know how to spread it out and and just have subtle scares and have kind of uh you know it's all this kind of like just just this brash language and these in your face characters and there's there's not really characters that have much of a range um, and the story is in your face and the, everything is just like kind of just shoved, shoved in there. Um, but there's just no, no subtlety to yeah. speak of, you know, Dude, <laughs> subtlety, subtlety is really important. And then there's the other end of the spectrum too, that I'm having a big issue with these days, which is oftentimes comes with no money. So mm -hmm. it's just like, we have no cash. So what are we going to do here? Let's have let's have the actors talk about the shit that they're going to do. And then after they're done doing it, let's have them talk about what they did. Yeah. And you're just like, can I see them fucking do something? Can yeah. I actually like, how about we make a horror movie about people making sandwiches? Cause at least I'm watching them do something. <laughs> yeah. At least there's a beginning and middle and end to that. Right. One, you know? <laughs> but just, I, I feel like it's probably cause it takes more skill and it's, it's more expensive to actually give actors tasks to do where I'd much rather see a sequence where someone's trying to accomplish something. Uh, look, I have a love hate relationship. I'm all over the place right now. I have a love, <laughs> I have a love hate relationship with the walking dead. Like mm -hmm. I want that show to be amazing. Like yeah. I want it to. And it's, it's like a, it's like an abusive girlfriend. You know what I mean? Where you're just <laughs> consistently going back. It's like, yeah, she smacks me around sometimes and she treats me like shit, but you know, she's still kind of hot, you know? <laughs> It's so like you're constantly going back to it. Yeah. And my favorite episodes that they do are kind of their bottle episodes, but they're the ones where like they have a specific task. 
Like mm-hmm. you and I got to go into this fucking building and grab this thing and then get the fuck out. Yeah. And, and then you're just building the tone around that beginning, middle and end. And those are the ones that stick with me more than like, hold on while we're running from zombies and a bunch of rednecks that want to murder us, let's have a conversation. So yeah. everybody stop in the room and look at each other and yeah. talk about the and same cry. shit that would be on <laughs> days of our fucking lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, yeah. I, I totally agree. And the, the, Sad thing is, in comics, that has become a trend that is almost to the point where you've you've gotten to the point in comics where if you see a big battle, it's just a splash page, and then the next page is is just a bunch of people sitting around and talking. And I grew up in kind of like the era of comics where there was like secret wars, and there was mm-hmm. uh, they, they were going to other planets, and they were doing all kinds of this crazy stuff but they focused on a single punch or, you know, they, they focused on a, a, a battle, like half of half an issue mm-hmm. would be just a slugfest issue, which you don't get that anymore. Everybody wants to kind of prove they're a screenwriter, I guess, and kind of have that clever, um, ironic, um, reversing expectations kind of conversation that basically the, a big lead up to the battle and then you see them the, the next panel or the next page is them coming back from the battle and talking about all the stuff that happened in it and i'm like that is the you're you're in comic books there's no budget to right. there's a budget to like who you're hiring and who is doing the art and who's doing all of that stuff but as far as what's on the page there's absolutely no budget to that so why make it so boring that it's just two people sitting in a coffee shop talking it's just you know it, there's there's much more out there especially in comics i mean you look at some of the stuff that kirby did you, mm-hmm. stan lee did and all of those greats um frank miller and and Alan Moore, all of those guys did these kind of giant ideas and they weren't things and they had a lot of talking in it as well, but it was action within the scene. It was, um, it had actual stories and it it was stories, but it also had action. It, It kept things moving through action, not through conversation. And that seems to be a lost art anymore in, uh, in comics these days. And it's, it's frustrating to see that because it's it it was a very creative visual medium and i think it still can be and a lot of the mm-hmm. indie books kind of still kind of can capture that stuff but i look at a lot of stuff from the main, mainstream comics and all they want to do is basically do clerks meets tarantino meets uh oh, trust me, i don't crazy. know yeah yeah me it too tries me, <laughs> it tries me it me insane dude and you're you're seeing it in cinema too where you know you there's such a there's such a there's such a language that can be used visually i mean these are visual mm-hmm. formats these are visual formats these aren't radio plays these aren't these aren't novels they're mm-hmm. visual the visual story format so use those tools like use the combination of what what does it mean to go from a to cut from a wide shot to a close up what does it mean to do to, to, to change the blocking between the, the characters and the camera. And what does every move mean? And what does every brushstroke yeah. mean? Because it's yeah. it's a visual medium. And, and as a kid, I would read comic books two or three times. My first time through a new issue, I would flip through it. I'd just be like, and i just look at the images and, and, mm-hmm. and be stimulated by these images and then had the ability to go back again and see it with fresh eyes and read it the second time around. But mm-hmm. my first notion was always 
looking at it and looking at where the story went and looking at this world that was created and looking in these moments that the artist decided to capture because you're, you're drawing still images. So how does this character look that has just killed somebody in dealing with the fact that, oh, turns out it was my girlfriend that I killed. What did, what do they look like? And what does their body posturing look like? And what does the lighting look like in that sequence? And that stuff has always been so fucking fascinating to me. And I feel like it's a medium that takes more time to learn, takes more time to get into. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody's in a fucking rush to call themselves a director right now <laughs> that uh, you're just getting... Uh, you know, you're getting second unit directors and you're getting cinematographers that are essentially picking up that mantle. And those guys are just like phoning it in. And yeah. you're like, what the fuck am I looking at right now? Like this. Yeah. It, it seems like in the, I mean, I, I don't want to say that the nineties was such a highlight of, of uh, this type of, of things that we're talking about, but you look at movies like the professional and mm-hmm. silence of the lambs in particular, in terms of communicating something visually um, I, I always go back to that those scenes between uh, Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling, where they're they're having this conversation, and at one point when someone's in control of the conversation, they don't have the bars in front of them, uh, <laughs> or it doesn't look like they're they have the bars between these two characters. Um, and for one thing, that's communicating who's controlling the conversation. The other thing, it's it's actually communicating what the intimacy level is between these two characters and that at first when you see each other, you see this either plexiglass window or these this the cage that he's in later on in the film and they're talking through the bars. But then mm-hmm. as they get closer into their conversations, these these barriers dissolve and it's just upright close to their faces. And that's a subtle way of communicating uh, something that... It could take, yeah, you could describe that in a, in a coffee shop and, you know, have, have them talking <laughs> that way and, and have Clarice Starling telling her friend that as we were talking, the bars just melted away. But, or you could just show that scene and have it resonate and have the, have the viewer, they might not be able to point it out at the very, at that mm-hmm. instant, but at the same time, they're going to, they get that feeling. They get what's going on. They don't need to have that to have it told to them or their hand held through that process. Or, or even totally. it's like you come up with that concept. You don't need to be congratulated for that concept by then explaining what's going on. Um, yeah. And it feels like a lot of lot of writers and and uh, and directors kind of just want that congratulation to be able to just really put the notice that I put the extra work in for this this scene and these are the themes that I was working on in this scene. And they have a character actually telling you that um, in the story, which is, to me, it just makes me just hit my head so hard I knock myself I out. It's, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's masturbation at that point. You know, yeah. you're, and you're looking, you know what it is? It's just harder. It's harder to do. Like mm-hmm. when you sit down to, 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 to storyboard out a sequence or you sit down to do coverage for a scene and granted not every person that's directing is a visual person mm-hmm. but it's you, you know what i mean like you if you're looking at a script and you're like okay how am i going to cover this fucking scene okay well i gotta do ma- i gotta do master so what would a normal master be okay do a wide shot get them both in that wide shot great now i have to do over the shoulder coverage for each hey what if we do it handheld okay great <laughs> okay so now we have handheld over the co- shoulder coverage and then i have to get a couple of inserts for the edit 
just in case something's fucked up. So when he picks up the coffee cup, shoot the inside of the coffee cup. And when he does this, shoot an inside of that. Great. Scene covered. Let's go shoot it. And when you're looking at television schedules, you're looking at how they shoot at the level of a feature film, but they do literally 12 hours of it in like three months or four months. That's usually the, the level that they can go with it mm-hmm. where it's like, we got to get We got to get through this fucking location. So bang that stuff out. And so there isn't a lot of attention paid to those specifics. Like you said, silence of the limbs, that's genius shit. And it's not like that person was born with that ability. They actually took the time and thought about it. And they said, okay, what do I want to feel here? How do I, how do I show dread uh, to a character that is behind bars? That is essentially in a place where he can't attack her. He can't do anything with it. So how do I, how do I show dread with that? And so you, you, you have all these different elements. And I'm on a rant, but you have all these different <laughs> elements of lighting, editing, camera positions, music, sound effects, no music, you know, blocking how the character breathes, who's standing, who's sitting, all these different elements that you can use instead of just looking at a page and going, how do I cover this scene? Well, there are two people in a coffee shop, so I'll get a wide shot of them both in that, and then I'll get a close-up and a close-up over the shoulder. And you're like, you somehow won the fucking lottery to get to the position where you're doing this, and you're just pissing it away like that? What mm-hmm. the fuck? You know, yeah. it drives me insane, dude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a creative, uh, you know, it's a creative medium. It, all of this is, and just. I don't want to read something that is something that I've seen a million times. I don't want to watch something that I've seen a, a million times. And it's like, to me, I'm writing to that audience that kind of just wants to see something different. I, I want to do something that makes, makes people um, just kind of look at things in a different way a, a lot of times. And it just really, uh, it, I, I have a, a new book that's coming out this week. It's called Pirouette. And I, I don't know, if, did I send you that? I don't think you, that? I don't know if I got that one. I'm excited okay. to read it. I don't yeah. think I got that one from you. Um, it's a, it's a circus horror story and it tells, it talks about, um, basically it's stars, a, a young clown who is trying to basically run away from the circus or at least run away from her role as a clown in the circus. Um, she dreams of being a, a, a trapeze star. Um, it's kind of like the opposite of running away to the circus, but it's someone who just <laughs> wants to get out of it. And um, it's got a, it's not really super like supernatural or anything. It's more of a grounded story, but it has to do with just um, someone getting out of their, just looking at themselves. And again, I put this moment in there and she's looking in a mirror at herself and she's like, is this all there is? Um, mm. And it's after a particularly harrowing day that, She's had all of this crap going on with in her life, and um, and it's that kind of thing where you question. Um, it, I and I built everything off of that, where she's trying to find a bigger world. In this story, um, she always thought she was born in the circus, and that was just her life. But then she gets this uh, piece of information that tells her that she might actually be not of the circus, and that they might have found. Uh, that she she might have been found at the like in one of these small towns that the circus kind of went through. This takes mm-hmm. place during kind of a little bit um, like 
Carnival time. I did that. You remember that old HBO series? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just depression era sort of thing where the circus was at its kind of like high point going through and there was that vagabond aspect to it. Um, but so they just happen to be going into this town that they're, that she thinks that she is originally from. And it's her journey of trying to find this, just some kind of hope that there's something outside of, of the circus that she's kind of trapped in. So, um, with that, it's it's like I'm working on all of these uh, these ways of telling this story, and it, there have been there haven't been a lot of circus stories, but the story, circus stories that you have that have been made have been pretty iconic. Um, mm-hmm. You can name all of the same ones. Um, that, you know, you can name freaks. You can uh, you can name uh, some of the big top kind of like classic big top kind of stories, or you can uh, name. Like the uh, the YouTube video, <laughs> you know, there are there are all kinds of different um, aspects of the uh, some of the Tim Burton movies, like the the most recent Dumbo. Um, it there are um, only a few of those tales, and so I I was pulling from that, but I wanted to put those in subtly and um, and still try to tell a story that people haven't heard before, um, because who wants to just see a remake of whatever? You know, I don't want to remake whatever like the the american horror story uh right store uh circus season you know i want to do something that's that's original um but also something that um is indicative to that not only that style of movie but that genre of movie and the stories that have been told in that genre so um it's a real challenge i think for just on that creative process to keep things interesting um and still kind of communicate in that visual language that uh, won't lose your viewer into, you know, you still want them to be able to understand and relate to that world right. um, by using this kind of shorthand of things that they've seen before, uh, which I think you can do, you can, you can do that in, in both film and comics. Um, it's just that film has that added, added, uh, <laughs> you know, you've got movement, you've got sound, um, which comics unfortunately don't have, but, uh, there, I actually used to do a uh, panel at the San Diego Comic-Con um, back when there used to be conventions that <laughs> basically um, paired up uh, comic book writers and filmmakers all in the horror genre and talking about the strengths and uh, weaknesses of each of those uh, mediums as far as like translating the sto- like a horror story. And right. um, it was it's been a, a really long kind of study of mine just to kind of find out what the limitations are in comics as far as what you can communicate on the page, um, how you can kind of communicate those, those unknowns that you can do so well in movies, uh, just like Mm. to have a black screen and some music and a a slow moving camera. You just don't have any of that in comic books. So you have to kind of just find different ways like a page turn or um, just kind of some type of um, occasionally it, people do have to take the shortcut of having something explained or having a, a person dialoguing something that might be obvious in, um, in a horror movie, but you can't communicate it in that way. So you have to have a, a either a narrator or somebody talking uh, right, <laughs> to say that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, the restrictions of the medium, but they, they both, you know, comics to me, always did such a great job at sort of capturing the moment and 
you know, Zack Snyder, when he made the jump and it, once he started doing his stuff, you know, regardless of whether or not his, his stories stick together, he was really sort of obsessed with the same sort of comic book icon iconography there it is mm -hmm. got it out um <laughs> that uh that um i was obsessed with too and a lot of people were like he does way too many slow-mos he does all well that's because he was essentially trying to recreate the vibe that you get when you look at a panel yeah. you know when you have that ability to like read through a page and then go back and examine uh you know the, the guy falling out of the window or, or like the smiley face pendant you know trapped in the air mm -hmm. like, yeah i mean i i I think a lot of people have their issues with Zack Snyder, but I, I think 300 was probably one of the most iconic looking mm -hmm. um, films that he's ever made. And it's so, um, it's thoroughly dedicated to that comic. It translates it so well. Um, mm -hmm. it, it just scenes, he finds a way of just visually making those panels come to life, which is, is I think it's a talent that he has. And I, I don't think, it's uh, something that every, obviously no. not every filmmaker has that that sort of talent, but uh, it's it's something that is is really unique to him. And um, I'm always excited to see his movies, uh, mm -hmm. even though I'm often disappointed. But um, <laughs> and they have their own. I think every one of them has their mo has their moments, and I'm looking forward to what he does with the Justice League. I'm sure it'll be. Just oh, yeah. insane, but um, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. <laughs> yeah, I've heard I've heard some things, and I'm not allowed to talk about anything that I've heard, but I've heard some things on the show, mm -hmm. and I also have heard about his. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that either, but I've heard about his <laughs> his next uh, his big uh, thing. I think it's Netflix. He's got a big thing coming out on Netflix. Oh, is it the zombie thing? Okay, so it's, it is out there. I, yeah, I think okay. it's been released. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I thought it was supposed to be out already, but I, I guess they had to do some reshoots because one of the um, actors got canceled or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and he's he, but he he's also, from what I understand, he's also uh, knee deep in doing reshoots for both at the same time. Like that wow. guy's a fucking machine. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and I I don't know. I don't think I'm not a fan of of what he did with the Batman and Superman stuff, but at mm -hmm. the same time. Um, I can recognize those for, for what he's trying to, he, at least he had a vision. Um, it might not have been a vision that, that was, um, kind of, uh, I don't know, just dedicated to, or it, it, it was, it wasn't a vision that, that I felt represented Batman and Superman, <laughs> but at the same time, at least he had something. He wanted to say something about it. It wasn't just a bland superhero movie that was... Right, dude. And I think that's the point. The point is, is that we're kind of starving for visions. We're, we're starving for like singular voices as far as like uh, movies are concerned, at least, because it starts to become this whole corporation process for a lot of these bigger films. And to, to see, to get Christopher Nolan's, to get your Zack Snyder's, to get these folks that uh, somehow have convinced the big boys to let them be the captain of the ship 100%. Mm -hmm. And drive this thing. I respect that, and yeah. there's a risk to that, you know, because you know maybe that get that guy or girl's vision isn't what you ultimately wanted it to be. But at least it was a fucking thing. At least mm -hmm. it was like a Scorsese movie. At least it was a vision for that. And and oftentimes we watch something now that we're like, man, that's not incredibly disappointed by it. I mean, look at the fucking thing. 
when that movie first came out, everybody hated that fucking movie. And, mm-hmm. and the audience was comp- incredibly disappointed by it. And now I can't do a post on that without, you know, thousands and thousands of people going, it's my favorite fucking movie ever. Yeah. It's at least it was a visionary thing made by a, by a director, made by an artist. And it wasn't this bland, you know, the new Star Wars. It wasn't, you know, this committee that was making these decisions. And in those decisions, it was also like, how are we going to sell a theme park right now? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's so it's nice to see. And horror is the place. And to just sort of wrap this up, because we're going a little long. We'll wrap oh, this okay. up. But Sorry about that. No, dude, I'm I, love a, it, I, I ramble a lot. And, you and, and we, me fucking both. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a bad idea to get us together. <laughs> uh, but the, and this show is really about horror. This episode, so like okay. the, the thing that's really great about that is that in horror, some for some reason there is still an ability for folks to be a visionary and for folks to have a voice. Um, and I think it's just because they haven't created an app yet. <laughs> they haven't they haven't created a formula they're trying by like checking heart rates and shit but they haven't been able to create an app that creates tone and creates dread through tone and when you see that sort of stuff that's what i loved about possessor um that's what i loved about uh, autopsy of jane doe oh yeah that's what i love about these movies is that the filmmaker's ability to create tone um, and that's through visual storytelling, that's through music, that's through script, that's through all of it. You have to always have a great script, but then in a visual medium, you take that script and you transform it into something fantastic. And so for those of you listening, uh, definitely go check out Mark's stuff because he writes great reviews. So if you're looking, if you're starving, like I am, <laughs> for good content, go check out his shit and... Uh, I'm sure he'll turn you all your suggestions so far. I've been like, thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. <laughs> uh, so that's good. And then um, there's a bunch of great places that are still making good fucking horror right now and places oh, to yeah. look at. And like I said, SpectreVision, you've got two movies that you that you listed on SpectreVision. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Arc Enemy that's coming out that they're yeah. about to release. Yeah, yeah, that looks good. I liked uh, Daniel isn't real, and I, I think that yeah. this guy's uh, Adam Egypt Mortimer. I had a, the the uh, privilege to meet him a while back, and it was just really great. He's a he's a over the top personality and a really fun guy to talk to. <laughs> so uh, it's it's good seeing him getting bigger and better movies or bigger and better opportunities right now. So yeah, cool. he's he's one of their boys over there. So. Um, but anyway, look, I should wrap this up. I should, you should just have you on the show again in the future. Oh yeah, I'd love to. We I'd can to. go on and on about horror. <laughs> yeah. um, Sounds great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I have the, um, ML Miller Frights is my, uh, YouTube page. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm ML Miller Writes on, it's just mlmillerwrites.com. That's basically the central hub of all of my stuff. Um, uh, it's got my reviews. It's got news about my comics. It's got, um, it's got all my videos there. So that's basically where you can get them. So, uh, so yeah. And I, I got pirouette coming out. I also have a, a uh, I'm in a, uh, Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to get all this at the very, uh, get all this in at once, but, um, I'm, there's a Kickstarter that's going on that I have a, an eight page story in with my artist, Carlos Granda, who did pirouette. Um, both of them, uh, that is, 
Pirouettes coming out this week, which is, uh, I guess it's November 18th, and I don't know when this is going to post, but it should be in in stores. It'll be in stores uh, by the time you hear this. And that's an awesome trade paperback that um, the the art, buy it for the art. My story's okay in it, but the art is fantastic. (laughs) Good sales Um, pitch. Yes. (laughs) And uh, um, the uh, Kickstarter campaign is called Nightmare Theater. Um, You might be able to support it. Um, I'm not sure how many more days are left on it, but it's uh, it's a really good uh, collection of short horror stories. And um, I'll send you uh, I'll I'll send you a peek at at what I'm I'm working on in that one. It's it's a lot of fun. But uh, but yeah, and then Grave Transfers is out in, in comic stores right now, so be sure to pick that one up too. So that was a fun episode, right? I had fun talking to Mark. I think I'll have him back on at different points in time because he's got a really good opinion on horror movies. Um, and definitely go follow him below, go to all his places, check out his reviews. And oftentimes there's that division between filmmakers and reviewers. And what I try to do is bridge that division, okay? And make sure that the people that are reviewing these movies have a bit of empathy for the filmmakers that go through it and vice versa. You know what I mean? Because uh, the truth of the matter is, I wouldn't have got my shorts in the hands of my agents, in the hands of studio execs, without the help of a reviewer. It was because 12 Cam was reviewed by my friend Izzy, uh, and that review was read by assistants of a management company. That review was read by assistants that work at Netflix, at all these different uh, distribution outlets. Uh, that's what got me the interest for the movie. That's what got me fucking honestly. That's what got me signed. All that stuff. And I wanted to talk about it on the show, but we got so lost in uh, reviews and horror stuff. But next time I have Mon, we'll get into it in detail. But there is a way to approach reviewers. There's a way to approach these folks and get them excited about your films. Now, he kind of hinted at it on the show. He gets tons of of offers to look at stuff. He's consistently getting stuff from all the big places to look at it because they're smart. They know the power of this thing, right? They know that all of us are like on YouTube going, oh, there's a new video out from my favorite reviewer. And then you end up going to check out the movie. So they're, they're, they're hip to the vibe. You should be too. So if you've written and made a good short, right? If you've done a really good job at a short film, and I don't mean that you think it's good. I mean, show it to people and sit there and watch it with other people. Have some friends over, watch your movie with them. And if everybody in the room goes, this is fucking good. Or beyond that, there's this weird little magic trick where you show something to people and while you watch it with them, it's uncomfortable because for the first time in a long time, strangely, I don't know how it happens, but you start to see the movie from their eyes. Right? Have you ever done that? Have you ever screened something with your friends and sat there on the sidelines and went, oh, fuck. Why did I use that shot? Oh, God damn it. What the fuck? And it's this weird superpower that happens. So if you want to really know if your movie's good, just watch it with your friends. Watch it with strangers. Watch it with two different groups of people. So after you've done that, 
after you've screened it and you've sat there and you've suffered through that screening. And afterwards, people go, this is pretty good. I like it. I really like this scene. And you genuinely start to get reactions from them. And you go, I've done a good job here. Now I should approach critics. Now I should approach reviewers with it. And a lot of you guys are like, but Mike, we're all not friends with reviewers. <laughs> These guys need material. They have a black hole that is called a website that is consistently consuming. And it's like this, it's like Seymour from fucking Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, feed me, feed me. These guys need content. And one of the hardest things to do when you're running a podcast, one of the hardest things to do when you're a reviewer and you're running a blog is just to consistently hunt for good content. It takes so much time. And most of these guys aren't getting paid big bucks, if anything at all, to do this. And so if you know that, you'll notice usually at the bottom of all their websites, usually on their Twitter accounts, there is a contact us tab that says like info or submit uh, stories or hot tips, that section. So what you do is you formulate a nice little email, a custom email specific to them and, and do them a favor by hunting through their reviews. You'll be able to know immediately based upon what they look at, whether or not they're gonna like your fucking movie, right? It's super easy to do. You go through and you're like, wow, these guys really liked uh, House on Haunted Hill and I hated that movie and I you know, I made sure that I did the antithesis of that. Well, don't send it to that fucking reviewer because he's not, he's not gonna like his shit. He might, but do your homework before you send it. Click on their little contact us thing, formulate a press release email that usually says in the subject material, uh, press release or for immediate release. And then you write the subject material for it. So like whatever the name of the movie is or even more clever about it where it's like actress falls into a vat of oil in real life and they make a movie about it. Because <laughs> you're going to want to open that fucking email, right? And then inside, give them a bit of a synopsis. But don't just go into the synopsis because I get those all the time. Do a nice little introduction paragraph. Talk about how you go through their website, how you've been through the website, how you're a fan of their stuff. Talk about a review that they've done in the past that you really like. Connect with them. Become a person with them. Write that first. Then say, hey, look, also, I just made a flick. I think you're going to really dig it. Here's a link to it. Here's all the press material that you're going to need. Help them out. So write up whatever the um, synopsis is going to be for it. Write up whatever you think that the press should look like. Because here's, here's another thing. When you look at a lot of these websites, like, like Collider or any of these other places that are posting new stuff about movies, they oftentimes just copy and paste the press release that the filmmaker writes in the email and they put it there. Because it takes the less amount of time, the least amount of time to do that crazy right so anyway write to them do that stuff and send them the link and then hang out and don't put all your eggs in one basket and uh no stress if they watch it no stress if they don't and oftentimes they will and if like i said if you've got a good piece they'll see it and they'll write about it and there are a bunch of these websites that the assistance for agents the assistance for execs consistently combing through because those guys are on the hunt those women are on the hunt for new filmmakers and that's how they do it this little trick it's actually more powerful 
than film festivals for a short film director. And if you've done what I've told you to do during our mid-roll, <laughs> I caught all you guys that skipped past the ads. I gave some good advice in the mid-roll. If you've done what I told you to do in the mid-roll, right, then you've got a great piece to show. And what is that piece based upon? Tone. There it is, guys. There's your tip of the episode. And a strong tip it is, because it's probably going to get you picked up. Okay? Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, And uh, a lot more episodes on the way. And uh, hopefully after we buy a new mattress, I'm going to have the ability to to do these without stuttering through them and using the wrong words. That'd be nice for fucking once. Okay, guys, that's it. I will see you next Tuesday.